Hello and welcome to The Two View. This is the cutting edge, interactive and informative podcast for EM PAs and nurse practitioners. I am Mike Sharma. I'm a practicing emergency medicine PA from Dallas, Texas, and I'm also an adjunct professor of PA studies. With me is my co-host, nurse practitioner, Martha Roberts. Hi, everybody. I already got yelled at. I've been looking at flights to get down to our next course. And I just recently booked my trip to our upcoming trip in Key West for the uh, acute critical appraisal course. But we're here right now at this course. It's like I keep thinking about the next course, the next course. I just need to enjoy the course that I'm at. Live in the moment. I need to be, be in the here moment, now with right? us. Okay. But I feel like when I live in the moment and like just pull that lever, lever over and over again, I'm living in the moment <laughs> and I'm losing in the moment. <laughs> Usually I'm dying in the moment when that's happening. Yeah. Three ATM trips. Gotcha. So this is called the two view. When we have a guest, we usually call that a different view. And I've told Chip for a long time I was going to reserve the sunrise view yeah, for Chip. Say, so it, Chip, you yeah. are the sunrise view. We have Chip Lang, emergency medicine PA. Um, he is the country mouse to my city mouse here. Chip, want to go ahead and talk about you and, and who you sure, are? Sure. So uh, my name is Chip Lang. I'm a PA in rural Missouri, and uh, I've been doing that for about a decade. My, my career and background before that is fire and EMS. I'm still, I, I guess, a sucker for punishment or something, and I still do EMS as well still. Um, but I, you know, I have lots of different interests. I enjoy teaching with you all. I, I do my own podcasting, yes. So, uh, but the other thing that I think has been already hinted at with the course, uh, uh, maybe just a little bit, is my, my fondness towards POCUS or point-of-care ultrasound. Do, do you like point-of-care ultrasound, Just a little bit, just okay. a little bit. You, you have know. a concentration in point-of-care ultrasound? Yeah, yeah, okay. a little bit. Do you want to talk about your business? Yeah, so, uh, uh, which one? Well, we'll talk, we'll talk about which the POCUS business? one, right? Which <laughs> Oh, what, what else are we talking about here? Well, well, the the total EM has its own. Business uh, oh, side okay. Too, so, but 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 it makes zero money. So it just <laughs> takes that away. Is that when you have a business? Is it a business when it makes zero money? That's the question. So I have to ask. it is yeah. not a hobby because hobby and taxes they're mine. So <laughs> okay, um, okay, back but back on track. Yeah. So so I have. Um, an ultrasound education company called Practical Pocus, and uh, Pocus again stands for Point of Care Ultrasound, and uh, it's we, we've been around for for five years uh, as a company, but I've been teaching ultrasound for the last about ten or so years, and our our big thing is is that we actually go all over the country to teach classes, but we go to the people. Um, at their facilities. We train them on their equipment. Now, we've been doing more because we have our own training facility now where the one-off individuals who want to get the classes but they don't have a group, we now have classes once a month at our facility. And uh, part of that is actually due to, thanks to a grant that we have with the state of Missouri. So we're, we're, we're based out of Missouri, but again, we're all over the country. And that grant uh, allows us to train anyone who lives and or works in Missouri at no cost. So you, if you are listening to this podcast, watching it, I guess both, whatever, yeah, um, so live, but if you live or work in Missouri, and again, you can live in a whole other state, you know, come into Missouri, we just have to prove that you are an eligible person, but if you are one of those lucky eligible people, then you can take one of our classes for absolutely free. Perfect. Maybe you have an uncle that lives in Missouri, and temporarily he can adopt you or something. Yeah, you know? exactly. Is that, Wait. I mean, I, I, sorry, sorry, uh, Chip cannot know about that, but oh, just, yeah. you know, like consider consider a brief adoption by your uncle in Missouri. Now, I've been to the course, and it was in the Ozarks. I stayed in this little tiny house, and it was so awesome. I had a great time at the course. It was very an, an intimate experience, and I, you know, got to do some things in ultrasound 
on bodies and see things. It, and it's just, it was very well put together. Plus I got a free butterfly case. You still giving those away? Uh, no. So actually the uh, rules with accreditation has changed over Darn time. Well, see, ACC and me kind of no shot lunch, guys. that down. So, uh, but, but yes, but, but we do, we do practice on a whole variety of different devices and systems because we really believe it's all about the, the skills themselves and not necessarily the device mm -hmm. that matters. But uh, that was a, a nice time for people because a lot of people got to, to get a device and they otherwise wouldn't have been able to, but yeah, things change with time. And well, your course manual is still something that I use and remind yeah, myself with yeah. all my notes. It's very useful. So, yeah. so, so what, what, what Martha's talking about is we also have uh, a template system that kind of goes through, you know, how to do the exam as well as pros, cons to it, or if there's any kind of limitations, and then uh, actually has a, an example documentation template that you can use too. And that's all part of our course, but um, we have we, we do everything from half day to up to three days of classes. We have an online component as well. That's another 24 hours of CME. So if you take our online and our in-person, it's a total of 48 hours of CME. So a lot for, of potential CME going on. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, so lots of credit. And that's enough for like any, um, uh, basically for anywhere you get credentialed privilege that you need to have so many CME hours, so many hours of education. That's meets or exceeds always those, those numbers that you need. It's so tricky, right? You know, you want to do ultrasound at a place and sometimes I'll be like, well, where's your certification? You can do ultrasound. Uh, yeah, it's right next to the certification that I got when I got my suturing certification, right? Or my abdominal exam certification. Like there was no such thing. There's no industry standard thing about that. But you know, often if you show them enough CME, they'll be like, uh, all right, all right, that sounds good. Well, we're going to talk about some breaking stuff in emergency medicine here. And I've, I've actually had a lot of like, experience with a couple of these things here. So the first one is this, when medical tourism goes wrong. So in Mexico, so a lot of people will leave the country and get inexpensive or less expensive surgeries out of the country, Canada, Mexico, Europe here. Um, the problem is, uh, good luck getting follow-up with the surgeon who did it. So fungal meningitis outbreak associated with procedures performed under anesthesia in Matamoros, Mexico. So there are two clinics specifically that um, are being targeted for this CDC alert. Anybody who had a procedure under epidural anesthesia between these dates is at risk for freaking meningitis. Okay, like that's pretty bad, all right? And it's not even the easy meningitis, it's the hard meningitis, okay? The fungal meningitis, slower brewing, but just as nasty. So what is the CDC recommending here? Everybody, Lottie Dottie, who had epidural anesthesia between those dates and these two clinics should get an LP regardless of what symptoms you're having because of how slow brewing this is. And if we can kill this early before you're having symptoms, how much better for the patient is that? So the idea is early LP, even without symptoms, to put early antifungals in if you need to. So well, one thing here is uh, you might want to ask yourself, are the signs and symptoms the same in a fungal meningitis? Are they worse? Um, do they still present with the fever, the headache, the stiff neck, nausea, vomiting, photophobia, all of that stuff? Yes, yes, they do. Um, but actually, some of these patients are, they seem sicker. Okay. Sicker is what I was Because they're coming in later? Or because they're coming in later. They took the time, like they're waiting it out a little bit? And they're waiting it out. Okay. So, but at the same time, you can still have these symptoms. Um, with, meningitis is meningitis, but fungal just makes things even harder. We're going to put links to the CDC alert and everything else we talk about will be on our website. That is twoview.fireside.fm. That's the number, twoview.fireside.fm. So look for more information there about what else is being recommended in terms of treatment, et cetera, here. Martha, you wanted to talk about this. I think it's really important, too. You know, P, the PA profession is going through its own thing about, like, 
are we physician assistants? Are we physician associates? We hired at great expense, we being the PA, at great expense, an international marketing firm to suggest what should we change our name to. And in the end, we chose none of those names, and we decided to go with physician associate based on a closed-door voting of the AAPA House of Delegates. And if you can't tell, I have some issues with that. Okay. So in the end, we are eventually going to become physician associates, which I think is at best a lateral move. I think the one word that describes our job more poorly than assistant is associate. Like, oh, you're a physician associate. You associate with physicians like y'all like hang out. Is that what we're talking about here? Like, what are we talking about? You know, so um, I, I have concerns. That's your associate level degree. Oh, yeah, God. That's exactly so, right. I mean, did you want praxisician instead? Do you remember that one on yes, the survey? Praxition was also, I mean, honestly, anything better than physician associate. I, that was the bottom of the list for me. I really did have a feel for medical care practitioner because I think it did mirror like, nurse practitioner, medical care practitioner. Like, oh, it's, it's kind of like the same but different, you know? So that's, that's all, you know. That, so now we are fighting for crumbs. We are like, we just want to change back to physician associate, which we were uh, previously, and we're getting fought on this by different associations. But we have, we're going for crumbs. The NPs want the whole loaf. All right, take it easy. I mean, <laughs> first of all, the, the doctorate degree applies to multiple degrees mm -hmm. in everywhere across across the world. And there's no reason that if you are a full professor that you can't be addressed as doctor. Now, that's a different case if you walk into a room and you're taking care of a patient and you're not a physician with an MD or a DO and you introduce yourself as a doctor. Um, it can be confusing for patients and you don't need to get into the whole confusion of the licensing and the terminology. And You just walk in the room and say, hi, I'm Martha Roberts. I'm one of the nurse practitioners taking care of you today. It's that easy. I don't care so much about the ego thing, even if I did have my DMP. I, I just don't care. You know, and if someone called me a doctor in a professional medical setting, I would correct them. Now, speaking of that, you know, that's what this article is that I want to talk about today um, by Steph Weber. It was in MD Edge, and it's called Nurse Practitioners Sue State Over the Right to Use Doctor Title. This is a couple of Californian, can you believe it, Californian uh, DNPs whose names I don't need to tell you about, but they were fined for using the uh, doctor part in their identification, $20,000. And some people, um, as far as another DMP who called herself Dr. Sarah, was sued and she lost big time. So, you know, this article is sort of looking at the pros and cons of being addressed with just the title doctor. And I think if you just step it down to the level of the fact that this is a nurse practitioner taking care of someone in the medical realm. It's absolutely appropriate to identify yourself as a nurse practitioner. Now, if you're in the teaching setting, you have your white coat on and you are doing, working on with rounds. I mean, some of our nurse practitioners work with rounds on the floor. Um, you can be a referred to as a doctor. When doctor. you're communicating to other medical professionals, like you're in rounds talking to physicians, PAs, NPs, that's what you're talking about. Sure, in about. a teaching setting, I think it's fine. But if that teaching setting rolls into, let's go to the bedside, hi, I'm Dr. Sarah, it's now inappropriate, in my opinion. You're going to take a lot of heat from that. I don't care because it's confusing for the patient. And why would you make things more difficult for them? I think we lose so much as clinicians in general because we care about identity 
and the way that we're going to look and how much we know, how much we don't know, when it's really just, it, I keep always saying it's a team sport. I appreciated the term uh, mid-level provider, and I know that you've yelled at me about this before. <laughs> I don't consider myself mediocre or mid-level because we all know that I actually, you know, I've done a lot of training. Yeah. But I don't need to go out there and boast about how awesome that training has been. I just get up and give you the information, or I just treat that patient and I do a good job. I'm not interested in, in that part of the business. And I am wanting patients to feel comfortable and safe. Just like when you weren't here yesterday, I said, um, patient, we were talking to patients leaving AMA, and they're like, well, I never saw a doctor. I say, you know what, let me bring Dr. Ken Milne in. He's one of my favorite physicians. Even if I hate Ken Milne, I'd say, let me bring in Dr. Ken Milne. He's one of the attending physicians. He's wonderful. And I'd like him to take a second look. What, what do I care? What do I care about someone saying, oh, well, she's not good enough or she's just a nurse practitioner? You know, I work with nurse practitioners that get infuriated, that say, why would you consult the physician here? You have an independent license. Psh, the more the merrier, honestly. Yeah, I think that you've made some good points about how the important principle for you and me, I think, is that we are valuing communication about what's happening here over what I am owed. Like, it's not about who I am or what, I, if I got a doctorate, you know, I would also still myself as a PA at bedside. It's not about me yeah. and who I am, what my title is. I want to make it clear what my profession is. Because in the end, like, if I kick ass, I do a great job with this patient, I want them to know a PA took care of them. Okay, that's yeah. better for my profession than like, just a, like, we're already so invisible as it is. PAs, nurse practitioners are invisible in many ways. I don't feel invisible. Care. See, that's why I embrace this kind of mid-level mid term. The job was never, I keep saying it again and again at courses, the job was never created for us to be at that doctor-physician level. Um, not doctorate, we can be doctorates, but the doctor-physician level. First of all, I don't get paid that. So why do I want to do that? I, I'm transitioning care from nurse to doctor, nurse to doctor. I am the midpoint. It's, it's actually very humbling and cool to be in that role, that, that both sides of the party want to come to me to work out a problem. Um, or maybe someone wants my opinion, or I can quickly do something. That's why the role was created. Not to run a department by yourself, not to, um, and boast about it. Why would you want to do that? That sounds terrifying and awful. So I think that you need to spend your time and energy uh, proving to your friends and family more that, like, you're good at those things than trying to butt heads with people at work being like, I'm so great at my job and I need this credential to, on paper to show it. Like, just do a good job. And then, lastly... When you're encountered with an intubation or a central line or something that is at the highest level of your practice, which is what you're striving to do, do it and do it well. But if you're not good at it, don't do it. Okay. Controversial for sure. I think I'm comfortable with what we talked about here. Yeah. Well, I mean. Clearly. <laughs> if, right. you're a if you have your doctorate. You may use that in a teaching setting. I am supporting of that. But it's or in a boardroom yeah, or something. It's right. too confusing for patients at the bedside. I, I agree. That's my summary. Okay. Malaria. <laughs> you thought it was only for outside of the United States. Malaria is here, folks. Okay. 
we figured out that there have been at least five cases confirmed of malaria being contracted by people in the United States, Florida and Texas, the first time in 20 years, according to the CDC. So four in Florida, one in Texas. As we know, this is a mosquito-borne illness. There's a parasite. Symptoms include fever, chills, headache, there's abdominal pain. Where we had our first case of two malaria patients in our ER recently was a patient who we were like, you know, it was, it was a new grad we were working with, and the patient, he comes out, he's like, well, this patient has like a fever and right upper quadrant pain and jaundice. And we were all like, oh, snap, you found a first like colon jaundice patient. That's really cool. And then we get a call from the lab saying, hey, we took liberty of doing a quick blood smear on this person. Your patient has malaria. Boom. So we did some more digging. This person was a new arrival to the States from Venezuela. Who knew that the risk of contracting malaria in Venezuela is the same as the risk of contracting malaria in Ethiopia? I did not know that, okay? So whatever, something is going on in terms of mosquitoes in Venezuela and associations with water and whatever. But yeah, Venezuela. So another one was a patient who came over from the African continent and had rather quadrant pain, jaundice, fever, and had malaria as well. So like two malaria diagnoses in the same ED within a few months. So my, my thought process was Charcot's triad plus travel equals malaria, question mark. Okay. Chip, are you seeing malaria in Missouri? I was going to ask him. No, we see tons of tick-borne diseases though. Yeah. Oh, okay. So, and there's a uh, uh, fun thing though about mosquitoes that, that I got to hear from infectious diseases that... Uh, there may be a connection now with Lyme and mosquitoes. And so I'm like, great, uh, ready for that to transmit. Really? But yeah, I didn't think like, it could be a vector. So apparently that's a, a brand new thing. So uh, uh -huh. yeah, and, and, and uh, we have a huge uh, problem that like quickly growing and becoming more problematic. We have all the fun tick-borne diseases. Like we have ehrlichiosis, <gasps> we have Lyme, we have the beat. Yeah, see, you found it already. Quick fact-tracking. Wow, so, let me see if it's credible. Oh my God! They can be vectors. Yes. Confirmed. Wow. Confirmed by the NIH. Well, I am being confirmed by, by NIH. Confirmed. Yes. So, uh, uh, but we have all the fun ones. But now we have alpha gal, and uh, if you're not familiar oh, right. with alpha gal, uh, it, it it causes a, an allergy to to bovine, and so basically you'll you'll have people who come in with anaphylaxis, and it'll be new onset. They they won't have any kind of clear thing, and when they have their allergy follow up, we find out that they actually have alpha gal. So when they eat meat, yes. Right? So when yeah. they eat Cow, red meat, yeah, yeah. yeah. Ugh, so and the steak. problem is, is that people with alpha gal, uh, it can be bad enough that it's bovine products too. So, uh, ooh. ooh, no, 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 not, not even vaccines. Yeah. Uh, so you, interesting. So we had we had uh, one particular patient where uh, every single medication. Uh, I, and I stuck this on the pharmacist, but every single medication we had to double check to see if any bovine products were used. Because that's how bad their allergy was. Wow. Interesting. And, uh, and uh, surprise, surprise, a lot of medications, whether injectable or uh, yeah. in pill form, use it. Yeah. So it becomes very challenging to treat some of these patients. I blame this on the cows. So, of course. There you go, blaming <laughs> the cows again. We usually do a segment called Something Sweet, a little uh, something at the end of our podcast here, but I want to do something a little bit different in terms of Something Sweet, okay? So... I'm, I'm, do, I'm running a case, or I'm running a lecture on diabetes here shortly for an outside organization, and I was just kind of doing some, uh, you know, looking around about, you know, the finger stick glucose. There was this cool case, elderly lady who's out picking cherries and goes down, syncopizes, okay? So 
comes to the ED, gets their finger stick blood glucose, because that's what you do when someone who has a syncopal episode, right? You check their finger stick sugar real quick. And it was, you know, it was like a tilt on a pinball machine, right? It was all sevens on the jackpot. It just said high. That's how high the sugar was. So of course, what you do when the sugar is that high, well, let's give fluids and let's draw labs and consider insulin and whatever else here. And so they start treating this elevated blood glucose. And then someone has the idea for whatever reason, let's prick the earlobe and check the finger stick, the, the ear stick, I guess, blood glucose there. And it was, now the article said 0.89 millimoles per liter. I have to do the translation on that here. It's 14. So glucose of 14. Um, I get concerned when it gets below 70, honestly. And so 14 is like darn near zero as far as I'm concerned. And so this, this the, case the, study is such ridiculousness. It's awesome I'm though. Like, I love this. And so uh, <laughs> but wonderful understatement from the case study, 14, right? Which prompted the administration of appropriate treatment. Yeah. Like uh, uh, while you're freaking out, you are shoving glucose to this patient. Like, oh my God, you know, like give it how's this glucose. happening? Oh my God. <laughs> All right, so they figured out that the cherry juice, the cherry juice on the fingers got incorporated into the finger stick glucose. That caused a pseudo-hyperglycemia. So then that led me to discuss or want to wonder, when we do a finger stick glucose in all these patients who have syncope or dizziness or whatever, they're here for their diabetes, blood sugar check here, how reliable is that anyways? Okay, because I've talked about how testicular ultrasound, not really reliable for torsion, Abdominal ultrasound, not perfectly reliable for cholecystitis. So, in terms of these international standards, a good glucometer, a finger glucometer, should read within 15 milligrams of the reference sample when it's below 75. So your patient who you stick and has a finger stick glucose of 72, it's totally okay if their actual blood glucose is 50... Okay, I did the math, math's hard. Um, no, six, uh, what did 62. you say? 62. 72, down 15, 60, 57. <laughs> 57. So somebody with a finger stick of 72 could actually have a blood glucose of 57, mm. which is a more concerning number for me than 70 whatever, okay? And also, it's totally okay that, you know, um, five out of 100 um, is also way outside of that, okay? So it's really important to understand that, like, you have to treat the patient in front of you and not the labs, right? If you, if you're like, if you had a patient who, uh, I have a patient who comes in and I'm not kidding, twice a day he comes in for a blood sugar <coughs> record check, twice a day. He has other problems if you couldn't figure that out, right? He has a lot of social determinants of health that are affecting his care, but twice a day coming in for a blood glucose check. And very often his blood glucose is 70 something. And at first I was like, like, Frankly, I was just like, get out of here with your blood glucose of 70-something. But now I'm thinking about, is it really 70-something? Or is it like 50-something? And then if it is 50-something, is it going up or is it going down? Okay, so I get really worried about this patient all yeah. of a sudden. Okay, so some ways you can have falsely low glucose, falsely low, okay? So weird leukemia, polycythemia, so there are ways to overcome that. That's pseudo-hypoglycemia. How about... Um, another reason for that is this, maybe something funny is going on with your fingers. They're not perfusing properly, whether it's acutely from shock or chronically from some peripheral vascular disease, Raynaud's scleroderma, as we know, that can kind of mess with the vasculature of the fingers or the thickness of the skin of the fingers. So in these situations, your number is actually going to be lower than what it actually is. 
pseudohyperglycemia, we talked about fructose, sucrose on the skin, but also if someone just came from their infusion clinic, right, and they, they wanted to get their high-dose vitamin C in addition to their B12 shot and their thiamine and whatever other, you know, <laughs> Myers cocktail they got at their infusion clinic, and they kind of fell out at the infusion clinic, and you get to your place, and their number is, you know, somewhat reassuring, 70, 80. If they got a bunch of vitamin C recently, that can cause a false elevation. So maybe they're actually lower than you think. Mm. So the way I've tried to, started to treat this is like, well, let's, if it's that borderline number and there are issues with this person getting care on the outside, let's go in and feed you and let's do a blood glucose, like a real, let's draw some blood, okay? And of course, I, I ordered that for my patient who comes in twice a day. So I'm changing my practice with this patient. I'm trying to like, do the one next test for this patient, ask the one next question for this patient. And so what do I see after on the nurse says, patient refuses blood draw, would like groceries instead. Okay. I can't really help with the groceries thing. Okay, so. What a cool case study. Next up is Chip Lang. And Chip, we spent a lot of time, I'm like, you told me about your, your Exciting past couple of months, like personally, we talked, and exciting I didn't want to, way to put it. <laughs> yeah, it's it's the worst thing to be the most exciting patient in the ER. It's never good to be that most interesting patient in the ER. Yeah. yeah. So you told me about this stuff kind of personally. You confided in me. I didn't want to like blab it in front of the crew last night, but but you know it came out, and you were like really open about talking about some things you went through. Yeah. So um, why don't we do this? We're going to ask some kind of targeted questions here because I know this is going to a lot of places. Sure. Okay. Sure. So first off. Do you want to talk about the medical condition you have? Yeah, yeah. So I have uh, myasthenia gravis, and uh, it's a neuromuscular disease. If you're if you're not familiar with it, it causes muscle weakness. The most common form is ocular myasthenia gravis, which means it's uh, isolated to the, the eyelids. Uh, and interestingly, I, I had this for about 15, 16 years, as best we can tell, looking back at pictures. So uh, the the thing is, though, when I went through PA school, like I rather intentionally like did not try to uh, uh, self-diagnose or anything like that. So I, I probably like noticed this and I should have, but didn't kind of thing. Uh, and, and then it wasn't until about three years ago that I was doing some activities, started noticing, hey, I've got some weird symptoms. Uh, and it was proximal limb weakness. I was losing my voice. And this is all around the time of COVID. And I thought like, well, it's because I'm having to talk through this N100 and, and that's why I'm losing my voice at the end of shift and it would come back by the following morning. And so I, I tried to like kind of talk myself out of these symptoms until one day, like at home, it just clicked that I might actually have myasthenia gravis. Like all of a sudden it just is like, so I do the ice pack test at home, and then, and then uh, I'm like, well, shoot. So I talk to my PCP, and, and we start doing the, the testing I get in with neurology, and uh, that, that's its own whole, whole story about getting diagnosed, but it was not the most pleasant experience. Um, but then I get the diagnosis, okay, then my neurologist leaves. So I have like this year's time span between neuromuscular specialists. My next neurologist comes into play, says, hey, we need to, you know, you're getting treatment, but we need to optimize treatment some more. And uh, the classic issue, we're fighting with insurance. Yeah. Like, and, and, and still to this day, the, the type of infusion that I really should be getting, uh, I still don't have. So, and we've been, yeah. we've been doing this since last November. But in, in, in July, um, or I'm sorry, in January, I had a little flare-up. So, so myasthenia gravis can, uh, because it's causing muscle weakness, can lead to what's called crisis. And, and 
that is when there's now a respiratory component. And the issue is the, uh, the diaphragm starts to fatigue. So it's very different in its presentation compared to other respiratory conditions that we think of, like asthma and COPD that I got to talk about earlier today. Like very, very different as far as how you assess this and, and how it presents itself. So I had a, a more mild case where, uh, like, it, it was very, it was very frustrating as the patient knowing that hey, I should be admitted, and I had to advocate for myself to get admitted. Um, and then it was like, well, you're doing well enough, quick enough. We're going to discharge you home. Um, I follow up with my neurologist who says, hey, we do need to do some more stuff. But um, it was actually that time the resident and a different attending. Um, and, and not, not anything against them, but it was just one of those, you know, they're like, well, since that was in a full-blown episode where you needed intubation, uh, you know, because there's, there's a controversial, like, is myasthenia crisis only when you get intubated or is it you have an exacerbation of your symptoms that involves respiratory? And at one point, I remember the, the pulse ox, because I was so fatigued, I had a hard time keeping my eyes open, that the pulse ox actually dropped down to like 84% with like a really good pleth. And, uh, and between that and just still having poor NIFs, which are negative inspiratory forces, um, it was finally, okay, well, I guess we'll keep you, you know, kind of thing. But, but it was, the neurology resident was very resistant, the resident I had that day that, was, that happened to be on call. But we go in there, um, and then April 2nd, my literally eight-year anniversary of working at my hospital, and I go to crisis on shift. So I want to, of course, I want to go here, right? So... Like, as an EM clinician, part of me thinks, like, once I nail the diagnosis, like, that's it. The patient just goes on to fantastic medical care and gets better, you know? But what followed for you, even with your medical background, months of going through it with neurologists, months of fighting with insurance companies, Ugh. you know? And so, like, you know, we, we see this, like, sliver of time, yeah. you know, with these patients. We think, like, oh, we're good. Like, I nailed the diagnosis, like check me out, and this patient's now going to be all right. But like, even for you, someone who has like a very intimate knowledge of medicine, you know, like you're, you're still battling. So now I had messaged you, um, and I was just recalling my text to see if you wrote anything fun while you were on any drugs, but you know, it turns out... No, my wife took my phone. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, I, said, I think I was asking you to do some work, and you're like, well, I did just have my surgery yesterday. I was like, oh my God, I totally forgot. You want to talk about... Um, the surgery that you had, and that was back in, gosh, when was that? June, right? Yeah, yeah, June? so, so well, I... I want to hear about the big crisis, if it's okay. The crisis, and then we'll go into that, because oh, okay. it directly, Sorry. directly ties in. My no, bad. No, no, you're good, you're good. Um, so, and, and, and with the first crisis, by the way, the, there was a PA in the ED who saw me and was like a fantastic advocate, was actually the one who um, also helped convince the neurology resident, like, no, this guy really should stay. Mm. Uh, and had, um, had great PAs upstairs who took care of me. So, so it was a very positive experience. But then April 2nd, um, I didn't really have anything that stuck out, and, and we still don't really know why I went into to crisis. So a lot of times with, with myasthenia gravis, the, the exacerbations, they're not like a, a, a night and day, like a, a, a very quick change. But in my case, unfortunately... Um, I, I have the most rare subtype of, of myasthenia gravis, and it just makes it even that much more challenging. Lucky. But, yeah, right. So, <laughs> Bless. Um, so as a result, like that, that type of myasthenia, uh, I can have more mild symptoms to then severe, and, and it can be a relatively quick change. And so over the course of about an hour or so, um, I went from, hey, I've got 
you know, the, the little bit of muscle fatigue issue. And to be clear, too. you're on shift. Yeah, I'm, I'm in the middle of shift. And of course he's working. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. sorry. Yeah. So, so you, wanted to tell, you want me to tell that part, don't yes. you? Okay, okay. So I'm, I'm sitting there dictating, and it becomes to the point where, like, I'm slurring my words. I'm getting super frustrated because, I, well, I've lost my voice before. I've never, I've never slurred my words. I'm, and I'm like, this damn dictation will not come across right. Oh. And I'm having a difficulty holding the microphone. So I'm like even more frustrated. And my charge nurse who, um, her husband's my PCP, um, noticed that I was a little off. The flight crew is down there to give their morning like report. And uh, she noticed that I started slumping off to the side and I couldn't really talk that well anymore. I couldn't support myself in the chair. Um, everything was double. I just couldn't see anything quite right. And uh, so, she, so she calls her husband, who's like, yeah, this needs to be done, and he needs to get transferred to Columbia, because he already knows all my info, so this made it super easy. Yeah. Um, but I, I get transferred uh, to my, my university hospital, where I have my, my neurologist, and then I get intubated there, uh, which was its, its own special experience, and then spent a week in the hospital uh, getting IVIG and getting optimized care, so that way I could do my thymectomy, which when I went with the cardiothoracic surgeon, I thought it was going to be one of those like, we're going to, you know, wait until you're optimized. He's like, you can breathe and you're okay. We're going to do the surgery. So yeah. it was, uh, uh, it was kind of one of those like, we're going to do this as quick as possible so we can try and reduce this risk of having another crisis. We talked a lot about um, some of the issues with your intubation and how they mm -hmm. induced you and things like that. Yeah. And like, that could be its own thing. You know, like it's on topic here. Right. But I wanna, I wanna focus on something you mentioned about the nurse that took care of you. Yeah. And, and there was a nurse that you had that, that was a not an experienced nurse, junior right, nurse. Right. Right. And just by providing good bedside care, she noticed a lot of things and kind of yeah. advocated for you. Can you talk about some of the things? Yeah. She, she did. So I, uh, I actually have. Uh, well, it would have been Asperger's, but now it's autism. Um, so I have lots of fun sensory issues, and that also means that. Uh, like when, when I got intubated and I got sedated, uh, I, I went down with ketamine. Now that was partly by choice. I was like, hey, if we're gonna do this, can, can we try it? Like, go. yeah, and uh, uh, it started out well, ended terribly. Oh God. <laughs> I, I, I woke up from the ketamine uh, and was still uh, under the influence of rock. And I woke up right when they were inserting my Foley catheter. <laughs> Definitely was not pleasant. Uh, and there's nothing I could do about it. And uh, the, the, the nurses, because I'm still in the ED at this point, you know, I, I got to look back at my chart later. I'm like timing this and figuring out like, I was super hypertensive then, but that's not what the part they paid attention to. Um, and I'm like trying to move, but obviously I can't. Uh, but what they caught was the fact that I had tears. And so then they realized, oh shit, like he is actually awake here. And- You were uh, locked in. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And uh, I, I remember them talking back and forth. I'm just like, please do something. And finally, they gave me enough propofol. Apparently, I burned through medications super quick, too. Um, lucky. Yeah, yeah, super lucky, let me tell you. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I, uh, I finally get today. I finally get down. But then when they decided to extubate me, because once I had propofol, I don't remember anything until it was time for extubation. What I do remember is that sensation because they only had me sedated with propofol at this point. They're not giving me anything for pain. And uh, whether or not this is something you do as, as you're, you're, you're in that kind of practice setting, post-intubation sedation, um, I have been a huge advocate for this. I've always pushed this really hard. 
Um, I, you know, I have my post-intubation sedation ready before I even intubate that patient. And I was hoping that, uh, you know, the, the universal karma would, would favor me and would be like, okay, we'll make this super easy for you. I woke up, no, no, no pain control, and I've got this tube. And I remember thinking, like, I can't do anything. I apparently fought my tube enough during the middle of the night and stuff because I, I kept, you know, needing more and more propofol oh. and stuff that they did a five-point restraint on me. So four was not good enough. Because four was not good enough. They had to add a fifth one. Um, so because I was What'd actually... What they tie that to? Uh, across my chest because I kept sitting up in bed. Oh, too, wow. Because I was doing you everything I could. Weird. I was, but, you know. <laughs> I mean, they were already putting Foley's in and stuff. I mean, I, I had... Technically, it was a six-point restraint, if you yeah. ask me. Well, it, it, it was. Um, <laughs> yeah, that, that makes it the sixth the six <laughs> restraint is the <laughs> So most uncomfortable tape to have come off, too, by the way. I had to uh, light this up a little bit. Jeez. So, so sorry, sad. sorry. So, so I'm, I'm choking on this tube. I, I can't move because I can't move my arms because everything's tied down. And I'm trying to tap to let them know like I'm waking up. And uh, what, what Mike's referring to is that there is this nurse who's in training, like she's a, she's a new grad nurse. And um, noticed the, the tapping over and over. And then I was trying to like do anything I could well, she remembered because she actually looked at the chart, which was something that... How about that? Yeah, I know. It's amazing, right? Saw, saw the autism was like, hey, is he trying to sign? So then in my head, I'm like, oh, shit, I never had to, like, even though it was nonverbal for a period of time in my life, um, I had to, like, I, I never had to do ASL. I never learned ASL. Right. So I'm trying to remember how to spell my wife's name in ASL. And uh, finally, they gave up on that, thank God. So then they, they gave me a, a whiteboard, and apparently it did pretty decent, like legible enough that they could answer some questions. But it was this drawn-out process of like trying yeah. to get x-ray, and the whole time I'm just thinking, like, I just want this sensory feeling to go away. And it was like, I, I would imagine anyone with excavation, this would be a, you know, an unpleasant experience. But uh, then they did an NG tube later on, which, again, it's kind of its own separate story. But I mean, it, 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 it just... It's, it's painful. It's painful, not just in the physical sense, but like the mental side of knowing what should happen. And especially when you're intubated, having literally no control. And, and so having this, you know, whether it's being locked in and you're, you're mm -hmm. under rock, or if it's that I'm drugged and I've got a tube in me and I can't use my voice and knowing that what should happen versus what is happening are two very different things. There are horror movies that have the same plot, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, like someone who is paralyzed yeah. and yeah. can't, and things are happening to them. Thank like, you for comparing my life to a horror movie. Oh, wow. <laughs> Just this episode. I compare my life to a horror movie sometimes, you know? I mean. So all that happens, and then you go on to have a thymectomy. Yes, mm -hmm. yes. Um, which also provided me with a whole new level of, of uh, empathy towards. So, like, so not that I'd want people to have the experience of being locked in or having poor post-innovation sedation or stuff like that. That was already like an experience enough and, and you know, made me really think just that much more and advocate that much harder for patients. But then to have a thymectomy, um, I, th they did video, which uh, was very thankful because it's supposed to be less painful than doing the classic, like we're gonna you know, open you up like we do open heart surgery. But I now have a new level of respect for open heart surgery patients because it felt like when I woke up, they literally clawed, because I mean, that's essentially what they did. They, they have to get everything between the sternum and the pericardium because the thymus is hard to see, especially as an adult. It's not clear cut borders. So they kind of just take everything. And sometimes that means taking even part of the pericardium. Um, 
But I mean, they, it, it, it felt like they literally clawed everything. I could tell you exactly where on me they had done the surgery. Wow. And uh, it also led to other weird sensory stuff too, mm. because I could, uh, at one point for like the, well, not one point, so over the next couple of weeks, I could feel my chest move because I mean, it, it's, it's um, how it was done, cartilage was disturbed, stuff like that. Yeah. It felt similar to how I felt flailed chest. And then to be laying down in bed at night trying to think of, okay, what am I, you know, what am I supposed to feel here? And to feel your ribs literally move in your chest was, it just was, was again, not a, not a pleasant experience there. But the good news is at least is that I've already, you know, I've, I've gotten better with thymectomies. The thing is with thymectomies is because of the whole pathophysiology of, of myasthenia gravis, it's, it's, not a, it's not an immediate response. It's not like taking your appendix out and then you're going to see the patient's doing better. It is a weeks to months or even years process to see benefit. Unfortunately, I've already started seeing some, uh, some of the benefit now. You're hey. a month and a half out from this your thymectomy. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Does that mean you can party tonight? So, yeah, <laughs> we just can't keep me out late. I've got a curfew, so, uh, Oh, you know, okay. Like, okay. But, I, but I slept in well today, there so I won't go. get to oh, sleep in good. tomorrow, though, because, you know, we got to start earlier, but, yeah. you know. Okay. I want to ask one last question here, and you, you mentioned something last night about when the decision was made to discharge you after your thymectomy in terms of your pain Oh, control. yeah, yeah. So, so this was... Uh, when I was so, and I will process it by, like, again, I'm super close with my opioids, right? Yeah. I do not like giving opioids. But when opioids are needed, I give more opioids than most because I don't care about how the, it comes in a four milligram vial. I'm going to give the right amount of opioids for the patient's mm -hmm. weight, or I'm going to give more mm -hmm. because they have opioid use disorder, mm -hmm. and so they have tolerance. I need to give even more than I should give just based on their weight, okay? Yeah. So it's one of those things where either I'm going to go very light on the opioids, or you're getting opioids from me, Okay. <laughs> Tell me about, or tell everybody about the decisions made here. Yeah, so when I, when I was on the, when I was on the neuro floor, <laughs> when I was on the neuro floor with my, my hospitalizations, like I, I, I got exceptionally well care. Like I, I felt fantastic. The, unfortunately, the cardiac floor experience was, was not to the same degree. And, and given, you know, they're used to seeing very specific patient populations, right? And, and they have on average about one thymectomy a month. So, I mean, they're, they're not seeing That's a ton of these. Expect, honestly. I honestly was too. I was, I was quite impressed. And the surgeon, I mean, huh. again, did a fantastic job. This is nothing against him. It's just I did not realize just how awful some of these things could feel. Wow. Um, but when I woke up, I'm in excruciating pain. Um, and, I've, and I've, with opioids, they, they just haven't really done much for me in the past, except for giving me night terrors and stuff like that. But I was, I was hoping that something, because when I woke up, I mean, it was the worst pain I've ever experienced in my entire life. And I've gone through a lot of painful things, but it was the worst pain I ever felt. And I had this for the first 24 hours. The next 24 hours, not so bad. Um, the 24 hours after that, they're like, oh, you're doing well enough. We can discharge you home. Well, what they said was that, you know, oh, you're just needing the oral medications. And the thing was, on the first day when I, when I first woke up, they gave me 50 mics of fentanyl, which, you know, my, my, I, I've had kids with burns where I give more than that. Like, yeah, you know, that, that's, that's not very weight-based dose, so kind of thing. But, and you're 7'3". Like, you told me how, much, how tall you were. You're 7'3", three inches. Is that correct? That's your <laughs> no, no, 6'6". Six, six. Oh, I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I was like, yeah, he I was about to say, like, whoa, <laughs> hold on, hold on. Did I not know something bad? No. But I'm, but I'm <laughs> you're a giant of a man. That's what I'm trying to say here. Well, thank I think you. that's a compliment. Height-wise, height-wise. 
So, so I'm, so I'm six six. I mean, I'm, I'm not a, a small individual. They give me the fifty mics. It does nothing. Zero. Um, yeah, yeah. And that was my thing. Is when she said, that, "I'm like, okay, but when do we get to try again?" <laughs> so, and and I'm like mm. coming in and out of consciousness because I was just in so much pain. And with the myasthenia, it makes it hard for me. The first day, I didn't actually open my eyes. Oh, like God. my my wife had to help open my eyes so I could even see who was in the room. Oh, so like I, I I because of uh, surgery also with patients with myasthenia, it doesn't go that great. Um, but just in general, because of like recovery and stuff like that with, with, there's a lot of medications that there's one thing to take away from this, by the way, with myasthenia gravis patients, there are a lot of medications you cannot use. Like, you know, I talked about, uh, magnesium earlier with asthma, cannot do it. Um, it will, with myasthenia myasthenia because it it can cause some real issues. But anyway, I, um, they discharged me on the third day because they're like, oh, you haven't needed any IV pain meds for a while. I'm like, wait, that was even an option here. <laughs> and, and they're like, well, your, your, your pain's controlled well enough. You've, you've gotten up and moved around a little bit, you know, and uh, the, the day, we didn't talk about this last night, but okay. the day after discharge, so, so I'm home, I'm like happy to lay in my bed, but I actually really backslid a lot. And uh. I, and, um, um, I, I, I required a lot of support for the next couple of days, but, but the symptoms were bad enough. We kind of debated, do I need to go back? Am I like going back into crisis because that yeah. can happen post-surgery? And, uh, you know, my, my NIFs were good enough that we just kind of mm-hmm. dealt with it at home because, and, and part of this was because I had such a negative experience in the, the, on the cardiac floor that I'm like, I don't really want to go back. And at one point I even like begged my wife while I'm there, I'm like, go to the neurofloor, see if the charge nurse that we know up there is there and then see if we can transfer me up there, which I knew was a long shot, but I was just like, I, I, I just can't, you know, I, I don't feel like I'm, the needs are being heard. And again, it, you're talking about a very select, very small patient population, but that's, you know, the, my wife, fortunately, because I, I talked with her a lot about this in advance, really did help advocate where I couldn't. You got to have a family member helping navigate yeah. for you always. And even when you do, even when you work in healthcare, I mean, we all have our own personal stories about what you've just said and our family members. You would in think, the past you would year, think, we yeah. all, went, all of us went through something like that. You yeah. would think that yeah. you'd get the best care possible. And sometimes it just doesn't happen. But I mean, the, it's, your story is incredible. And I think what you are doing with your life is even more incredible just putting both those things together, it always makes me wonder, like when you see certain people or you meet others that just, like they can, you know, they can barely even function. Look at you dealing with this and a family and what, like nine children? Are you like Sharma? That's me. No. Right? <laughs> yes. I have Two that act like nine children. And I mean, they are and a, crazy. And several businesses. I mean, it's really, it's really incredible. And I think that you're owed... Um, a lot of recognition for that. I don't know about Ode, but I mean, like, I just, I, I just more want people to be aware that there's just, there's just a lot that happens in the background, and you know, it's, it, it is challenging in a lot of different ways, and I, I make the most out of it, and you know, fortunately, in a lot of ways, because of having, like, I'm, I'm very fortunate to have the support I have, and I'm really concerned. Like, the, the, the kind of funny thing, if you will, was that. Between my two hospitalizations from January to, to April, I did have a myasthenia gravis patient who came in for exacerbation. Oh, wow. Much less severe symptoms, but I picked her up immediately right. because I'm like, I can do and, and it. Is, I got you, fam. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I just, just knowing exactly what she needed, got the IVIG, got everything set up. Like, 
you know, talked to neurologists and had a, a very productive conversation. And it was just a very different feel compared to what happened next. Yeah. So, but, but again, that's, that's not to, that's not to be a negative on, on anyone or anything. It's just the overall process and something that I think we just have to recognize as, as individuals who take care of patients. There's so many things you touched on here in terms of listening to your staff, even the newest of your new staff members, you know, um, they may be doing more of a chart biopsy. They may be trying to learn more because they are new and you, know, you don't want to discount people just because they're new. Like we've all been the new person. Some of us are the new person right now. Okay. Yeah. And you know what it feels like to be discounted. And, 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 and I know that we're going to remember those days, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. And, and so I want us to like, uh, you know, I, I, you know, no matter what about wanting us, I, I need to remember those days too. And I need to make sure that like every single person in the team, um, if there's something they're trying to contribute, I need to take a second and listen. And if they have some suggestions here, if it's not going to hurt the patient, like, mm-hmm. why don't I, let's try it. Let's go ahead and give it a whirl and, and let's see how it goes. And if it goes well, that person feels like a rock star yeah. and they're going to be on your team forever because you listen to them and they advocate for the patient. The patient got better. How good does that make them feel? And they're going to look to you and go, oh my gosh, like this guy is somebody I want to work with every single day I come to work. You know, so I, I want to try to remember those days and I want to try to be that person um, for my patients. You spoke to about like, maybe people, like we, the pendulum right now has swung towards like opioids, don't give opioids, oh my gosh, opioids, right? You know, but like, Sometimes people are in extraordinary circumstances or have other, there are patient factors, right? It's not about just what you, like, we can't just, I, again, I don't talk about we. I need to make sure I remember that my approach to certain medication choices or disease processes, the patient gets a vote as well. The patient may have extraordinary things going on that I need to take a second and take a step back and go like, okay, what I was trying to do isn't working why is that? Does this person have some sort of other things going on in their lives? Was there a complication? Um, do I need to adjust my usual processes in terms of this disease process or this, this medication administration? So we have to wrap it up. Yeah. Yes. We have uh, a very lovely Everyone's got plans. faculty oh, yeah. dinner. Okay. We know everybody wants to go out. And a giveaway. Thank you guys. You yeah, got a giveaway. giveaway. Let's talk okay. about the giveaway. Is mm-hmm. that okay? Did you have yeah. something? Okay, gotcha. So on our last episode, we talked about ketamine, and we talked about ketamine in the setting of the combative patient and how ketamine at the dissociative dose, which is considered five milligrams per kilogram, maybe uh, 500 milligrams for the average 100 kilogram patient, is a good way for someone who is a dangerous patient, either dangerous to you or dangerous to themselves because they have what looks like an emergent condition and won't let you take care of them. Ketamine, a big not dissociative dose of ketamine is a way to put somebody down, chemically restrain them, so to speak. Ketamine is great for animals too, but there is one animal, at least one animal, in which ketamine seems to rev them up instead of putting them down. So the question was, in which animal does ketamine seem to produce these excitatory findings? And in which year was the paper published that details these findings? So the one I found, which I think, frankly, is just more interesting, sorry to David Michelson here, but the more interesting one to me is, Snails. Yeah. How do you know the snail is excited? Exactly. What is the snail doing to let me know it's excited? Okay. Are you tracking length of, I I don't know. Instead of going like this, it's going. 
<laughs> is it like that movie Zoom where it's yeah. like flying across? Right, yeah. So I don't know. But there was a paper in 2000, and we're going to put the link on our website, twoview.fireside.fm, snails. Now, Dave Michelson, who was a PA, wrote in and said he found a paper that rats get excited with ketamine. And his paper was 2016. I have not independently verified this, but Dave, I trust you. Okay, I'm trusting you. So Dave is going to get 20% off a course, any course he wants to, okay? And so he can, um, we'll, we'll send you an email, Dave, and you'll, you'll write us back as far as what course you want to go to, live or streaming, and, and that'll be that. Okay. The special code for that is going to be RATS2016, right? RATS, yeah, yeah the, the, the coupon code is RATS, oh, no, SNAILS2000. Oh, SNAILS2000. That's Snap here, right? That's Snaps. SNAILS2000, right? Well, that okay, might be my new screen right. name. So, we have to do another <laughs> trivia contest yes, today. Yes, and I have it. Okay, you, okay. I do. So, this is... How are you going to choose who answers? Because we, we have to understand that first. Well, we're, um, I, they may not know. This is... I wanted to point out first, this is a family uh, affair. Faculty that we work with are like family. I've known Rick... Uh, as we like to joke, since I was a fetus, I've known Diane almost my whole life. And um, we've had some people in the company now for years, decades. And um, we all are very close. We're like family. And it's very important to us that we, um, you know, share some of our personal life with you, but also share with you the best information we possibly can and, and know that we really care, just like family. You're someone we really care about learning. So in this particular case, if you're a really true, avid listener of the podcast, you know the answer to this question. Dr. Rick Bucata had an animal. What animal was it? And what was the animal's name? This animal was very important to Rick. And you're really testing them. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're not screwing around today. No. It's a free course. It's like an $800 thing. Okay. All right. Well, raise your hand if you know. Okay. So I don't think I let you finish. So you had an animal. You always interrupt me, Mike. I always, I mansplain. That's, God, that's a problem You know with me. what? You have been mansplaining me for a long time now. Can I explain and I am for not, a second? <laughs> I am not putting up with it anymore. So Chip, get what, out of here. Here's what mansplaining is, you guys. No, I'm kidding. All right, very good. <laughs> All right. So does anyone know the answer? And so to be clear, I, I Rick's dog. <gasps> you gave away the first part of the answer. Oh, that was not intentional. Any... I was going to say the animal. So now I guess the name. Now you have to guess the dog's weird? name. Is that, I don't even know was the it dog's Bingo? name. I was, I was listening to the podcast. I don't recall the dog's name. Does anybody know? I know the dog's name. Well, yeah. Yeah. Wait, don't say it. Hold on, hold on. Don't say it. Okay. Does anybody here know the dog's name that passed away? No. That, that, that was a good try, though. <laughs> All right. Well, we'll have to have a backup trivia question. Okay, here's because the backup. Because you know there's a listener right now that's like, I know the answer. There's somebody screaming at their, their yeah. phone right now. Yeah, yeah. they're okay. like, come on. Because they're they not are here, avid so listeners, but they're not They're not here. here. So yeah, where are you? Okay, all right. So here's what we'll do, um, if I may. Sure. Just take over like you always do, Mike. Ooh, wait, so are we going to find <laughs> out this answer at some point or we what? Will. We will. Okay, okay, okay. okay. Just want to make sure. First person that raises their hand and can tell us a city in which we have ever or will ever do an emergency medicine and acute care course in. This is our traveling course that goes to other cities other than Las Vegas. It's a city where we're going to be at in the future or we've been in the past year or three. Tell us the city we've been in. Ed. There you go. Yes, that's correct. Yes. Okay. Woo! So Ed, free course here. Ed, tell us about yourself real quick. New nurse practitioner. Way to screw that up, Mike. Massachusetts four-year NP. Now, what's that? 
from England. If you can't tear, tell, um, he has a delightful accent. Really impressive accent here. I'm really enjoying it. Okay. You sound smarter already just by having that accent. Well, that's... That's it for today's episode of The Two View. We are so glad that you could join us. Thank you for staying. We really appreciate it. And please rate us on our uh, potential Yeah, um, so I have a right rating here, site. Fact. Oh. You, want, you go ahead. Nope. I want to give you this one. Oh, you're going to give it to me? I'll give it the to whole you. thing? Whatever. However much you want to Well, I, I know. No, you do that because You I, have your thing. I, I have my thing. Yeah. That's, we'll do our things? Yeah. Okay. It's like, right. when do I get out of here? <laughs> so thank table. you for listening and attending this episode of The Two of You. You can subscribe and rate us on Apple iTunes Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify. We have like 20-something, no, 40-something ratings on Google Podcasts. It's pretty cool. Okay. So nice. search for Two View Emergency. That's the number Two View Emergency. It'll come right up. If you like YouTube, you want to see um, the towering frame of Chip Lang. You want to see the um, beautiful blouse that Martha's wearing. You want to see my ill-fitting sports jacket. You can go to Center for Medical Education on YouTube or ccmelive.org and catch the video version. Don't forget our website where you can go next level on any of our topics from any of our episodes, twoview.fireside.fm, and email us at twoviewcast at gmail.com. Our audio and video engineers are usually Ricky Bucata and Dave Pett. We have Chris helping us out today. So thank you so much, Chris. Show notes are always by Meg Dipple. Meg, so glad, so sad. I almost said so glad you couldn't be here. That'd be really neat. <laughs> so sad you can't be here, Meg. I promise I'm sad. Okay. All right. Thanks for sharing your time with us today on The Two of You. Please share this podcast with a friend or a colleague. And again, thanks for sharing your time. Best of luck on everything that you're doing this, um, this week and the next. Have a great shift. Thanks, everybody.